morning. Please be seated. How is everyone today? Good. Excellent. So whenever I read this passage, I'm reminded of an experience I had years ago that I've probably told you about before, because it really is literally what I think of every time I read this passage from Luke. When I was a young mom living in South Dakota, Adele was just a baby. She'll be 22 on Friday, so it was a while ago. <laughs> I had a marketing consulting business that I ran out of my home. There was a woman who lived nearby us who had had a baby a couple of months before Adele was born, and so she watched Adele for us four days a week so that I could work. Her name was Darcy, is Darcy, and Darcy and I had absolutely nothing in common, but I loved her in the way that you love the people who care for your children. Every Monday, Darcy would go into Aberdeen, which was about 45 miles away, to do her grocery shopping. But she went on Monday so she could also go to a women's group, a Christian mom's group. And Darcy was constantly trying to convince me to go with her. My husband, wise man that he is, tried to warn me off going. But I was hungry for some spiritual and intellectual connection with other women, so I finally agreed to go. When I first arrived, everyone was very friendly and made a point to introduce themselves to me. I introduced myself, and I said that I was there with Darcy, who took care of my baby for me four days a week so that I could work. From the looks on the faces of the women around me, you might have thought that I said, I ate small children for breakfast. <laughs> One woman whose face became very pinched said, my husband and I have made many sacrifices so that I can stay home with our children. And I said, well, that's wonderful. I'm so glad for you, right? And she went on to say that working or staying home with our children is a choice that we each make. Inherent in her comment and in her body language that was that while it was a choice, I had made the wrong one. It turns out that I was the only woman in the room who worked outside the home. So right out of the chute, I was feeling incredibly judged. We then moved into this large room and sat in a circle. One woman opened the meeting in prayer, and then another read a passage from Scripture, this passage from scripture that we read from Luke this morning. And we began to have a conversation about how we prepare for Jesus's return. One of the women began by saying that as a woman, as a mother, as a wife, her duty was to care for the home. And she took great pride in that, which is wonderful. She said she is responsible for making sure that the home is perfect, clean, no spotless, so that when Jesus returns, he will feel welcome. She literally went on to say that she needed to make sure there were no dust bunnies under the bed when Jesus got there. And on top of that, that there were home-baked cookies in the cookie jar and maybe a batch of lemonade in the fridge and food on hand so that she could whip up a beautiful meal at a moment's notice. My first instinct was to giggle, thinking she must be kind of joking or at least speaking metaphorically, right? Dust bunnies as metaphor, I get that. Strive to clear out the mess in our lives 
I get it. But she was being very literal. Her job was to make sure the house was spotless, there were fresh-baked cookies ready to offer, perhaps a cool pitcher of lemonade. As a metaphor, fantastic. In fact, there's this lovely line, one of the blessings at the end of the marriage ceremony that we do, that basically says, wishes that the couple may have so much love, they may so love, honor, cherish one another in faithfulness and patience and wisdom and true godliness, that their home may be a haven of blessing and peace. I love that. Yes, absolutely. That might be among my goals, right? And how I would prepare for Jesus showing up at my doorstep. I love the idea of my home as a haven, a reflection of the love that my husband and I share, that we share with our children. Yes, but the literalness with which she spoke of this, she meant literal dust bunny. Perhaps it's a little funny in the ridiculousness, but it's not actually benign, and it misses the point as I see it. The idea of the second coming of Jesus has never been core to my theology. I believe that Jesus' message was about how we live in the present, how we live with integrity and purpose, how we care for one another, respecting and uplifting the dignity of all people, of all creation. This is reflected in our mission as a church, right? How we spread love across the community and well beyond. Whether Jesus returns at some future date has always been irrelevant to me. Not worth my time to ponder, except perhaps in an abstract, theoretical way. But I began to ponder it after that day because I realized, not for the first time, of course, but I realized how foundational that thinking was, is, for that group of women and so many others like them. And I wondered... I lived my life in anticipation of the second coming, if that might change how I approached the world, how would I prepare for the second coming of Christ? I would try to live a moral life of value. I would try to love my neighbor. I would love my family, honor my parents, love my husband and my children. I would do my best to raise kind and moral children. I would give of myself in ways that stretched me beyond my comfort level, speaking up when I witness injustice, stopping on the side of the road when I see someone in pain. I would try not to judge people too harshly for their life choices and different worldviews. That might be the hardest part for me, to be honest. I would try to keep a tidy home, right? Of course. But I wouldn't worry too much about dust bunnies. If someone stopped by unexpectedly, I'd offer them a cold drink of water, maybe a cup of tea or coffee. I might scrounge around in the pantry to find a cracker or cookie, still freshness, to serve. But likely the visitor would say, I'm fine, don't bother with that. I just came to see you. And then we would likely sit and have a good conversation, sharing our time and our ideas and our dreams with one another. Whether that person were Jesus, or an old friend, or even an LDS missionary or Jehovah's Witness, which has been known to happen. I think, I think I would live my life the way I do now. 
What saddened me most about my time with these women, about the approach these women took towards their life and their faith, was first the level of rightness and judgment they exuded. I applauded their choices. I have many girlfriends who've, had, who've made the choice to stay home and raise their children. I have some guy friends who've chosen to stay home and raise their children. It's a wonderful choice to make, but it's not the one that I made. And not simply because we couldn't figure it out financially, but because I had invested 15 years of my life and my career, and I took satisfaction from it. And I wanted to continue. One thing I know about myself is that I don't function very well without some external accountability and structure, a deadline, reports, regular meetings, not to mention intellectual stimulation. I would have been a terrible stay-at-home mom. In order to be the best mother I could to my children, I knew that leaving my career and staying home with them was not the best choice for any of us. These women in Aberdeen, South Dakota, had a very clear sense of their role as women, wives, mothers, what was expected of them, the domestic arts, keeping of the home, frying up the bacon, but also a particular deference to the authority of their husbands, a very traditional sense of family, a true commitment to the idea that this role, their role, is ordained by God. And their submissive submissiveness, I can't even say that word, their submissiveness <laughs> to their husbands is sacred and second only to their submissiveness to God. But it was all a paper-thin veneer. They were seeking to live into a stereotype, the perfect woman. And it is tempting to embrace that stereotype, one that runs so deep and so strong in our culture and in our scripture, and it seems like we are either striving to live into the stereotype or seeking to rebel against the stereotype. But it's always a film clip playing in the back of our minds somewhere. It's impossible to entirely ignore it. I think, though, what saddened me the most was in their stalwart commitment to being the perfect woman, wife, mother. There was no room for imperfection or vulnerability or any real intimacy. These women were not there to support one another in their struggles for perfection, but rather to prove themselves to one another. Sort of a one-upsmanship was going on. I felt like I was spending the afternoon with the Stepford wives. It was a little eerie. Stereotypes, whether perfect or imperfect, are very thin representations of reality. Ideals are that simply live on the surface. These women were trying so hard to project some specific sense of womanhood that they were unable to be vulnerable to acknowledge real pain, anger, confusion, frustration, disappointment, or even joy. This was a women's group that I had no desire to be a part of, and needless to say, I didn't go back. When I think about our women's groups here at St. John's, and I imagine the men's groups are the same, really any of the groups that meet here together, the goal, if there is such a, a goal, the gauge by which we measure our progress, is by how vulnerable and imperfect we're willing to be with one another. The idea of having to present a veer of perfect womanhood is exhausting and counter to our desire for deeper connection. Stereotypes are illusions, 
dangerous ones because they're not based on real truth and depth. In their forms, they destroy creativity, individuality, perpetuate injustice, and infringe upon our agency. And this is true for men as well as women, of course. Men fall into the trap of being the savior, the provider, the protector, the rock. I wanted to ask these women why they were wasting their time. There's like the judgment part of me coming out there. Why they were wasting their time trying to be an illusion of womanhood. I wanted to ask them if they knew that each person's ideal self is based on their own unique self. Their experience, their culture, their situation in life, their gifts and talents, the judgments they make and the dreams that they dream. That they were seeking an impossible ideal. I wanted to ask them if they knew that God loved them for who they were, just as they were. The idea that we need to fit into a certain rigid form. If we don't measure up, we're unworthy. If we aren't as good as, or our house isn't as tidy as, or if we don't dress as well as, or our bodies aren't as perfect as, that we are of lesser value, to whom? Certainly not to God. God loves diversity loves our difference. Just look at the world around us with millions of types of insects and plants and animals, all different on their, in their own unique bodies and abilities and purposes. We are beautiful in our uniqueness, individual and beautiful beings made in the likeness of God. We are, each and every one of us, created in God's boundless, limitless, spectacular and beautiful image. And yet we are all imperfect. And what God wants for most for us is that we each seek to become the greatest manifestation of ourselves that we can be, not conform to some ideal or stereotype of who we're supposed to be. And we each get to decide for ourselves how we live our best lives in the world to glorify God, to live God's message of love most truly and purely. That's what Jesus will look for when he shows up on our doorsteps. Who are you? What do you value most? And how do you live your life to glorify God's love? One of my favorite lines in this passage is actually the line that says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God wants us to live our lives embracing those things that matter most to us. Loving the people we love with abandon reveling in whatever activities give us joy, engaging in work that brings us life and meaning, glorifying God in our embrace of life, and spreading God's love to the world in our own unique and beautiful ways. We spend so much of our life trying to meet the expectations that have been placed on us by parents and society, scripture and religion. The beauty of maturing is that over time we hopefully come to understand that who we are is perfect. Some of us know this early in life. My son Oscar seems to have this gift to be really comfortable in his skin, right? And revel in being who he is. When he was in preschool, a little girl named Bethany came up to him one day and said, you know what, Oscar? I don't really like you. And Oscar looked at Bethany right back in the eye. He said, that's okay, Bethany. Other kids do. I love that. 
I love that. I love that level of confidence in his innate and unique value. And others of us struggle with that throughout our lives. If I had one gift to share, it would be to help every human being know deep in their soul, deep, deep in their soul, that they are loved just as they are. That in all their manifestations of self, God loves them. That's what I would do to prepare for Jesus showing up at my front door. I'm a woman, a daughter, a sister, a wife, a mother, a priest, a lover, a friend, an advocate, an activist, a reader, a writer, a person of faith, a person full of deep questions and endless doubts. I am a work in progress. To paraphrase the song by Little Feet, do any of you remember the band Little Feet? They were a small band. They had this great song, though, but to paraphrase that song, I am a perfect imperfection, sometimes happy and sometimes sad. I am loved. I stopped at 8 o'clock there with a praise God, but in, the, in, <clears throat> in an effort to be vulnerable, I want to share a little bit more with you all. I'm at a funny crossroads in my life, that has once again, for maybe the thousandth time, caused me to evaluate the who and the how and the why of my life. A month ago, I lost my father. You probably all read about that. And I've been in a place of real gratitude rather than sadness. Gratitude for having a wonderful father who I could talk to and share my life with and be vulnerable with and trust completely. Not everyone can claim that. Not everyone gets a great dad. So I've mostly been gra grateful rather than sad. Later this week, I will take my youngest child, Oscar, the the Oscar, off to college. And I'm mostly really excited for him. Excited to see what he does and who he continues to become, to see how he lives, his he lives most fully into the person that he is meant to be in this precious life that has been given to him, how he uniquely glorifies God. I am so proud of him, unafraid to grab onto life with his whole being and go for it, whatever it is. But then there was this moment this past week when that gratitude for the life of my father and that excitement for the future of my son collided. And the result wasn't grateful excitement, but grief. I suddenly realized in my gut that my dad's no longer here. And my son will no longer be under my roof every single day as he has been for 18 years. It's his 18th birthday on Wednesday, by the way. And both of these events are milestones. And to not appreciate the solemnity and power of these transitions, to sweep them under the carpet and buck up, denies me an opportunity to grow and to fully experience the depth of life. I am a daughter. I will always be a daughter. But a daughter whose parents are no longer living is a very different role, one I haven't quite figured out yet. And I am a mother. I will always be a mother. But a mother with no children living it under her roof, and it's a very different role, one I haven't quite figured out yet. I'm excited that these transitions free me up to explore other aspects of myself more fully, my role as wife, as priest, as writer, and reader, and advocate, and activist, 
But change is hard. Transition. Transformation is at once terrifying and exhilarating. But I know at this phase of my life that however my life changes and evolves, I am a perfect manifestation of myself in this moment. And I am ready. When Jesus shows up, I'll be ready. Dust bunnies and all. And trust me, we have dust bunnies. I do want to say, I imagine with Oscar out of the house, it will be tidier, and I just hope that Jesus notices. 